Welcome to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. C.F.W. Walther was a parish pastor, later professor and first president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He was also the first president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. These sermons were preached from 1840 to 1870, predominantly in congregations of the St. Louis area. Unfortunately, we do not know the specific dates and locations of most of these sermons as they have been lost to time. These sermons were originally preached and published in German and translated by Donald Heck. They're available in two volumes from Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. Thank you for listening. The first Sunday after Trinity, Luke 16, 19 to 31. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Amen. Dear friends in Christ Jesus, in Holy Scripture, the Christian church is likened to a field on which the weeds flourish among the wheat until the end of days to a wedding hall in which not all wear the wedding garment, and to a net which encloses not only good but also bad fish. Accordingly, we dare not be surprised that there never was a completely pure church, that there were many who have been baptized and bore the Christian name, but who denied this name and their baptism by their works. Though the corruption in the midst of the Christian church has at all times been great, it has never been as great as it is today. It is true that when Luther arose 300 years ago, matters were in a terrible state. The abomination of desolation, which had been predicted by Daniel and Christ, stood in the holy place. The great falling away, which Paul had predicted in his second epistle to the Thessalonians, had taken place. The man of sin and the son of perdition, the Antichrist, had seated himself in the temple of God. He had himself worshipped instead of Christ. He introduced his human commandments and dogmas instead of the gospel. Although he had forbidden the Christian to read the Bible, he still had not dared to destroy the force of the Bible itself by calling it men's words, a book of fables. Because God's word was still esteemed as God's word, a reformation of the church was still possible. Since the foundation of the church had not yet been torn down, one could, with God's help, build on it, and the temple of God could gloriously rise again. When the light of God's word again shone brightly in the darkness, thousands upon thousands, yes, millions, again turned to the saving truth. Soon the Lutheran Bible church stood like a city of God upon the high mountain. The brilliant light of her pure doctrine shone far and wide into all the lands. But today, now the words of Psalm 11 are fulfilled. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now the prophecy of Peter is fulfilled. Know this, first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? 
For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. 2 Peter 3. Or is that not true? Is not all of Christendom today full of mockers who no longer believe in any promise and threat of God? to whom Judgment Day is just as laughable as it was to the people of Sodom. Are not today the foundations destroyed? Are there not thousands, yes, millions, who were baptized in the triune God and no longer regard God's word as God's word, but a miserable book of legends and myths? Yes, are not even many Christians so poisoned by the unbelief and false enlightenment of our times that they no longer believe very much of what is clearly written in the holy writings? Do they not tear sometimes this, sometimes that, out of the holy writings, and in such sections follow instead their reason, or their hearts, or the accepted principles of the would-be enlightened world? Are there not today many Christians who are ashamed to embrace the utterances of the Old Testament and New Testament, which are so annoying and offensive to the unbelieving, intellectually proud, falsely liberalistic 19th century man? Oh, that God in heaven would have very much mercy on us. Now even the believers have become unbelievers. A reformation seems impossible. It is clear that the world is drawing to a close. We see the patterns of the time of the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the destruction of Jerusalem are being duplicated today. The darkness of the midnight hour has come upon us. The judge already stands at the door. The clapper has already been lifted in order to strike for the last time and announce the expiration of the last hour. God's army, the army of the angel of the Lord of hosts, are prepared and have fallen into ranks in order to fight the last great battle of Judgment Day. Just a few more minutes, and God's trumpet will sound. My friends, what shall we do? Where do we find light in darkness? Where is certainty in the tottering of all things about us? One of those now damned in hell once appealed to a man for help for his brothers, who were still living in the time of grace. This man gives us the answer. Let us now hear him. He speaks in today's gospel. Luke sixteen, nineteen to 31 There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham! Have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. 
And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And then he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So far, our text. The text just read is one of the most powerful upon which one can preach. In it, we see heaven and hell opened. Everything which can possibly move a person to take counsel with himself and see to the salvation of his soul is presented in the most vivid colors. On the one hand, we see the future inexpressible happiness of those who have journeyed the narrow way to eternal life. On the other, the future inexpressible torment and agony of those who have securely traveled the broad way of the world to hell. But the most important thing this text contains, the special ultimate purpose it discloses, are the words of Abraham. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. On the basis of these words, let us now consider the truth. Nothing can save those whom God's word does not save. The reason for this is twofold. Nothing is so certain and nothing is so powerful as God's word. Luke 16 tells us about a rich man who had lived securely and thoughtlessly. He spent all of his days in magnificence and joy. Because of his good fortune, he had thought that God must be his friend. When he had to die and leave all his earthly glory, he found himself fearfully deceived. With terror, he saw that God had been his enemy and he God's. He had hoped to be taken into heaven. Instead, he saw himself cast into hell. He who once was so rich was now eternally poor. He who once had clothed himself in purple and fine linen was now naked and destitute, clothed in the flames of hell. He who once had reveled in all the pleasures of the world now yearned in vain for a little drop of water to cool his burning parched tongue. When even this comfort was refused him, he thought of his five brothers who still lived on earth without a care for the safety of their souls just as he had. He feared an increase of his torment if they would come into this place of torment. He therefore begged Abraham to send Lazarus to them. As an eyewitness, he could describe the pain of the damnation which he was suffering, so that they might be moved to be converted while there was still time. But what does Abraham say? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Then that miserable rich man thought that he also had God's word and yet was not converted. He therefore said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. 
And what did Abraham answer to that? He repeated his first statement, adding, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Thus Abraham declared, He whom God's word does not save, nothing in heaven or earth can save. And so it is, my friends. Even today, many think just like the rich man in hell. They suppose that God's mere word is inadequate to convert and save men. They think that there are many sincere people who could not be convinced that the Bible is God's word, who would find much in it which is offensive, who gladly would believe it, only if they could. But because they know that their reason is also a wonderful gift from God, they cannot believe what in the Bible appears to be confusing and contradictory. If therefore God wanted to convert and save all in his way, then the word of God is not adequate. Absolutely different means are necessary. If, for example, miracles which none could deny would be done for everyone who should be brought to faith, or if the dead would rise from their graves and tell what the fate of the believers and unbelievers is on the other side of the grave, or if hosts of angels clothed with heavenly glory would come into the world and openly state the will of God in reference to men, or finally, and this they suppose would be the very best, if God himself would appear visibly to men in his divine majesty, telling each one what he demands, if he wants them to be saved. Then, they suppose, all doubters and unbelievers would quickly come to faith. All enemies of Christianity would become its friends. All godless would be converted. All these, however, are nothing but the perverse thoughts of the perverse human heart. When Israel was in great uncertainty over its future, the prophet cried to them, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and of the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Isaiah eight, nineteen and 20. It is and remains internally true what Abraham replied to the rich man who had similar thoughts. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead, for nothing is as certain as the word of God. Have not the greatest, most convincing miracles been done from the time of Moses on by all the prophets, the apostles, and Christ himself? Have not even the dead arisen in the Old Testament times as well as in the New and appeared to many? Have not hosts of angels descended and brought men a message from God's throne, even to godless Balaam and the infamous inhabitants of Sodom? Did not God himself descend visibly on Mount Sinai in flames of fire? Did not he himself publish his law under all the signs of his divine majesty, so that hundreds of thousands could see and hear everything? Finally, did not God call from the clouds when Christ was baptized in the Jordan? This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
so that all who were present could hear it? Matthew 3. But were those thereby brought to faith, who were not to be brought to faith through God's written and spoken word? Did not Pharaoh remain hardened despite all of Moses' miracles? Did not the Pharisees remain enemies of God despite all the signs done by Christ and the apostles? Did they not blaspheme the more horribly, the greater the miracles were, so that finally they blasphemously called out, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, Luke 11. Did not the leaders of the Jews decide to crucify Christ when Lazarus was awakened from the dead by Christ? Did not Balaam stick to his evil intention despite the appearance of the angel? Did not the inhabitants of Sodom actually try to lay violent hands on the angels who appeared in the city? Did not Israel, just a few days after the visible appearance of God on Sinai, forget all this, murmur against Moses, and start a riot? Did not many of those who heard God's voice from the clouds at Christ's baptism and had seen his wonderful miracles and signs, Soon thereafter cry, Crucify him! Crucify him! Did not the knowledge of Christ's resurrection spur the Sanhedrin on to spread the most laughable lies in regard to the greatest and most wonderful miracle of all? Did not Judas see and hear Christ in all his divine majesty and even receive the gift of performing miracles in his name? And did he not, despite that, in hardened unbelief, plunge into hell? You see, those whom God's word does not save, nothing can save. Whatever means even God himself might otherwise use to bring a person to faith, they all are not as certain as his written revelation. When all signs and miracles, all heavenly appearances, be they by the dead or by angels or even by God himself end, Doubt can afterward easily arise. Did I not deceive myself? Did I not think I saw or heard something that was only the workings of my fancy, only my imagination, only a dream? God's word, however, gives an incontestably lofty certainty with regard to every doubt. In it, every person has, so to say, a letter from God himself on what to believe. There a person has something by which he can take God at his word. If a per person doubts whether this or that actually is God's will, a passing miracle or a fleeting appearance from another world is eternally lost if he must base his faith in it. But God's word does not pass away. God's word remains with a person. From day to day he has in it a fountain, from which time and time again he can draw truth and clarity. There he has a gathering of counselors, whom he can ask time and time again for advice. There he has a mercy seat, from which he, just as the high priest in the Old Testament, can time and time again receive God's answer. After the apostle Peter had described the heavenly appearance on the Mount of Transfiguration, he writes, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, Second Peter 1. Outside of God's word, we can rely firmly on nothing. We cannot rely on our heart, for it always wants to err. 
Whoever trusts his heart, says the scripture, is a fool. We cannot rely on our reason because it so easily errs. What one of the wise of the world calls great wisdom, another calls foolishness. We can rely still less on the witness of men because they not only are mistaken, but so often they deceive us knowingly and maliciously. All men are liars, says the scriptures, and experience confirms it. But God is wisdom itself. He is, as Moses writes, not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will not he do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Numbers 23. Far be it. No, though everything else makes a mistake, God does not, for he is God. Though everything else is unreliable, God is reliable, for he is God. Therefore, his word is also upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. Psalm 33. Yes, God's word is the truth. We can joyfully swear by it. God's word is an eternal rock. We can confidently build upon it. God's word is God's very own handwriting. With it, we can step without fear, even before God's judgment throne, and appeal to it on judgment day. God will not. God cannot disown it. God will. God must acknowledge it as surely as God is God. Even when the Son of God dueled with the Prince of Lies and Darkness, he had nothing more sure, nothing more certain, nothing more incontestable than being able to hold up before himself each time, It is written. It is written. It is written. Oh, my friends, let us bear in mind that the nearer we come to the last day, the more cunningly and violently the evil foe aims to make the Christian uncertain and suspicious of the treasure of the word, and thus tear him away from it. Let us be on guard. Our salvation is at stake. If the word is taken from us, then our only light, our star, our only sun, which alone can light up the dark path through the world into heaven, is extinguished. Our one and only staff, upon which alone we can lean during our travel toward the heavenly Zion, is broken. We have left our only fortress, in which alone we are safe and invincible. We have thrown away our only weapon, with which alone we can fight and carry off the victory. We are like sailors who, without compass, rudder, and sail, a plaything of wind and waves, do not sail the wild seas of the world to the harbor, but to their own destruction. Nothing, nothing can rescue us, because everything else is uncertain. God's word alone is certain. My friends, nothing in heaven and on earth can save those whom God's word does not save, because in the second place, nothing is as powerful as God's word. God is inviolably holy and righteous. He does not want to pardon fallen men and save him as he is. Rather, it is God's eternal, unalterable will and counsel to accept in grace and take into heaven only the, those men who humble themselves before him, who with a crushed and repentant heart seek his grace, and who with a living faith 
appropriate to themselves the reconciliation established by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. If a person should be saved, he does not need only instruction, warning, and admonition. He requires a means that first of all has the power to heal his natural blindness in respect to his condition, so that he can see himself, his sins, and his misery aright. He requires a means that awakens him from his spiritual death to a spiritual life. He requires a means that crushes his stony heart, makes it soft and pliable, and fills it with remorse and sorrow. He requires a means that fills him with heavenly comfort, with a childlike confident faith, that his sins are forgiven him for Christ's sake, even when he wrestles with despair. He requires a means that bursts the thousand chains with which every person is by nature bound to sin, to the world, to earthly things, turning him into a new man who is living in the love of God and his neighbor. Now, where are the means that have this converting, regenerating, and renewing power over the human heart? Though God may overwhelm a person with temporal goods, that does not melt his hard heart, as we see in the rich man. Yes, the better things go, the more easily he deceives himself, supposing that he does not need to be converted. He thinks that God shows that he is already his friend. Affliction and misery have indeed great power to make a person meek and embitter the world and sin for him. But without God's word, no trouble, no matter how great, can lead the man to God, as we see in the heathen who do not have God's word. Through their distress, they have been driven only to murmur against their lot and finally to despair. Only in God's word has the power to bring a person to repentance and faith. When the word proceeds from God's mouth, it is almighty. Our God is in the heavens. He can do whatsoever he pleases. The heavens were made by the word of the Lord, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. God spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. God said, Let there be light, and behold, there was light. He said, Let there be an expanse, and it was so. God said, let the waters be gathered together, and they gathered together. God said, let the earth sprout, and it sprouted what it should. God said, let there be lights in the expanse, and it was so. God said, let the waters swarm, and they swarmed. Genesis 1. God said to the storm, peace, be still, and it became still. He said to the lepers, be clean, and they were cleansed. He said to the spirits of hell, Depart, and they departed. Matthew 8. He said to the blind man, Recover your sight, and he saw. Matthew 9. He said to the ear of the death, Ephatha, be opened, and his ears were opened, and the string of his tongue was loosed. Mark 7. He spoke to the dead in the casket and in the grave, Arise, come out, and they came out. John 11. It is this very same word of God that is recorded in the writings of the prophets and apostles and is preached by true servants of God. This word of God is therefore an almighty word. It makes dead souls alive, stony hearts pliable, unbelieving and comfortless, believing and happy. It saves condemned sinners, and it makes the godless pious. 
and children of sin and wrath it makes to be holy children of God and grace. My friends, have not you yourself often experienced that the word of God which was read or heard struck your souls like lightning, enlightening the secret recesses of your souls? All at once you knew what previously you could not know. Have you not often experienced that God's word pierced your heart like a two-edged sword so that you bled from remorse and pain over your sins? Have you not often experienced that in your anxiety and fear, God's word filled you with the sweet comfort, that you still had grace and the forgiveness of sins, that though you were poor, miserable sinners, you still, for the sake of Christ your Savior, would not be lost, but inherit eternal life? Have you not experienced that when you receive God's word into your heart, it consumed your sinful lust as fire consumes stubble, and poured a love into your heart which nothing, nothing else could give you? Oh, my friends, engrave this deeply on your souls. Those whom God's word does not save and convert, nothing in heaven and on earth can save and convert. The word of God is the only tree of life which God has planted on earth. Its fruits alone can preserve us from eternal death. The word of God is the only ladder which God has set up between heaven and earth. On it alone can we climb to heaven. God's word is the only key of the heaven, which God has thrown down to men from heaven. With it alone we can unlock the gates of the heavenly Jerusalem, which were closed to sinners. I repeat, do not permit yourselves to suspect God's word and be torn away from it. If you give away God's word, you give heaven away, you give salvation away, you give your soul away, you give God himself away. For only through the word does God come to you and you to God. Do not, however, be satisfied in merely having God's word. That alone cannot help you at all. Someday it will only increase your accountability before God. The rich man also had God's word, Moses and the prophets. He did not despise it, yet we read of him, In your lifetime you received your good things, but now you are in anguish. Do not therefore close your heart to God's word like he did. Open it, as poor Lazarus did. Knowing his sins, he bore God's chastisement repentedly and patiently, with bitter poverty and painful sickness. Believingly, he waited for the promise of Abraham and was carried upon his death, by the angels to Abraham's bosom. He was seated at the heavenly table, where he, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was eternally comforted and refreshed. May your hearts not remain unmoved, despite the preaching of God's word and its richness. Do not resist its voice when it calls you to repent. When you hunger and thirst after grace and forgiveness, follow the call of your Savior in the gospel. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew 11. O oh, Lord Jesus, you know that nothing can save and convert us. Yet have mercy on us all. Preserve your word for us, and do not let it be preached to us in vain. By means of your word, fill our hearts, which by nature are secure with the terrors of hell. If you have killed us, make us alive again. If you have led us into hell, lead us out again. 
and then give us your Holy Spirit for a new life in your love until we shall see you and perfectly love and praise you forever and ever. Amen. You've been listening to Classic Lutheran Preaching, CFW Walther. These sermons are available in two volumes as a part of Walther's Works, Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. We thank you for tuning in, and we pray that God's Word has and will continue to be a great blessing in your life. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.